Digital greetings and a warm analog welcome to you. I am the Critical Android. This is the second edition of How Does It Hold Up? Today's episode is going to be focused on, well, a direct sequel to the previous one. So if you haven't heard that one, you're going to want to. Because not only are we discussing Mortal Kombat again, but we have the same guest back. Welcome back, Mr. Dougie Style. Well, thank you again for having me. I look forward to talking about this film just as much as the last one, even if my feelings are very different from the last film. <laughs> yes, because uh, we, we went from discussing Mortal Kombat to Mortal Kombat Annihilation, the 1997 sequel to the previous film, which this movie has a reputation. And one of the, reas- <laughs> <laughs> one of the reasons to go back and watch this, as we've mentioned before, the whole point of this podcast is to go back and see how films have held up. Now, in this case, this movie didn't even hold up after the day it was released, according to most people. Yeah, that's a good, that's a fair statement to make. Not only is this more of a case of how does it hold up, but we get to ask ourselves, was it really as bad as people say? And I think that's just as important a question to ask here as whether or not it holds up. And, uh, man, well... Dougie, how, how, how'd you feel <laughs> about watching this movie again? Well, you know, I, I think on our last show, we were talking about Mortal Kombat 1, the movie, and we were talking about how in the history of video game films, it's arguably the best film in the genre, which of course says more about the genre itself. But nonetheless, we, we thought that there was a lot of good things about it, and really the only video game movie I could think of that could compete with it for quality was the Silent Hill movie from the mid-2000s. But, you know, we were also talking about how really Mortal Kombat, the first film, really bucked the trends and really was better than it had any right to be. And so I think it's interesting that we go from what's probably the best film in the video game genre to what is arguably the worst film in the video game genre. If not one of the worst movies of all time. Right, exactly. I mean, we're really scraping the barrel and it's it's kind of fascinating to see a franchise go from one extreme to the next in the snap of a finger. So, yeah, there's a lot to talk about. But, I mean, what was your background going into this? We talked, you know, obviously about Mortal Kombat, the game, and, and then leading up to the film. But I definitely have my story of, of uh, the lead up to this film. Do you have uh, anything to talk about in terms of your lead up to the film before you saw it? Well, uh, I did not see this in theaters. We, we did get... We rented it. I, I remember we rented it when it came out. The, the movie was released in 97, and in November of 97, so by the time it was on VHS, it would have been 98. And I would have been 13, 13 at the time. I, just, I clearly remember when watching this, thinking to myself, this isn't really good. Uh, <laughs> and and I, I also remember when the movie opens, and you take a look at the actors, and wait a second, well, that's not Raiden. That's not Johnny Cage. That's not Sonya. <laughs> it's like one after another. You realize they, they changed the entire cast for the most part. The only reason I recognize Liu Kang was because, thankfully, Robin, Robin Shaw was also not only in the first Mortal Kombat, but also in Beverly Hills Ninja, which, you know, this was his heyday for his career, like 95 to 98. That was his prime, mm. man. Yeah, uh, I was completely taken aback by it all. And then watching it and just there were so many bad parts of this film that we'll get into but i clearly remember leaving this movie going wow the first one was way better so my lead up as as we talked about in the last episode i was into everything mortal Kombat. 
when the first one ended, I recounted how I actually stood up in the theater and yelled no at the screen when it <laughs> left on a cliffhanger because I couldn't believe that they would leave on a cliffhanger and leave me hanging like that. And for the next few years, I was anticipating this movie like nobody's business. And it's interesting, looking back, I always think that this movie came out in 1998 and not 1997, because the wait time between the two films felt endless <laughs> for me at that age. But you also have to remember, I was nine years old when the first movie came out in 11, when the second one came out. And when you're that young, time moves at a much slower pace. <laughs> And this was also before the internet, really. I mean, we had the internet, obviously, but I didn't get it in my household till late 96, I want to say, early 97, maybe. And again, that was dial up and there wasn't much. So it wasn't like you could just go on social media and find out every little thing that's happening about your film <laughs> that's being made for better or worse. We talked about how back then the video game magazines were such a big deal still because you didn't really have the internet. So you would buy them to get the cheat codes and whatnot. But they were also the ones that were covering updates about this film i remember going into walmart or grocery stores and seeing you know ads for the movie in these video game magazines would get me to pick up that video game magazine automatically and i saw first pictures of cyrax and i saw jacks with his metal arms i had heard pretty early that they were doing some recasting of some of the actors in the film and when i found out that sonia was being recast i was disappointed at first but then my friend brought up a really good point saying you know, the original actress, Bridget Wilson, wasn't a very good martial artist slash fighter, which again, we talked about in the last film, and they used that to their advantage when they could, but that in this film, they wanted to get an actress that actually could fight. And so once I heard that, I was actually getting a little more excited in some ways, because I felt, okay, well, they're going to get somebody that can actually fight. We're going to get some really good fight choreography from this actress. I'm not going to ding them points for that. And then, like I said, when, when the first film came out, Mortal Kombat was my everything. By the time the second film came out, I was obviously still pumped, but things had started changing a little bit for me. I had entered the sixth grade. I'd gotten into music that summer in 1997, and I'd also seen the first Halloween film in October of that year on television with my dad. So basically, horror films and music would become as you well know, two of my most favorite passions of all time and would soon basically leave Mortal Kombat in the dust. I was still pumped for this movie. I kept waiting for it. And we were closer to a big multiplex theater at that time. But I remember when Mortal Kombat 2 came out, Annihilation, it wasn't playing in Salinas. It wasn't at any of the theaters there. And it wasn't even in Monterey, which was a place where there was another mall with a multiplex theater. The only theater it was playing in was the small Pacific Grove Theater. So I remember having to go out with my dad, my friend, and one of my dad's uh, co-workers, Mary Scaltrito. We all went together to see this movie. And I had shown her the original one when I had stayed at her place with my brother when my parents were out of town. And she ended up really liking it because, one, she's a big Highlander fan. And so Christopher Lambert was Raiden. And she actually was the one that pointed out that he was in Highlander for me. So we all went to go see this movie together. I remember there was a line out the door to get tickets. So even though, you know, the fact that this was playing in one theater didn't mean it was sold out. I just remember we stood in the concession stand area of which there was just four theaters and a small concession stand and it was packed. It was the most packed I've ever seen that theater. So we go into the film. It is a full house. The credits start. And I experienced something that I had never experienced up until that point. It was an audience laughing at a film and not with a film. And it's interesting because earlier that year, I had seen Batman and Robin 
in theaters. And I didn't experience that sensation at all. In fact, I loved Batman and Robin. I thought it was great. It really took me a couple years to figure out that it wasn't. But this film was so bad that even at that age, I could understand that something was wrong, that something wasn't clicking here. And there's a reason that the audience was laughing at it and not with it. Segwaying off of that Batman and Robin thing, a good point here. And that as we found out later on with stories that came out from Batman and Robin, that the movie was pretty much made knowing that they had to appease like toy sales and all these things. And advertising, uh, like, there's a massive advertising budget for Batman and Robin back in the day. So, like, all these things were, like, huge factors in it. And because of that, the movie kind of took on an intentionally camp angle. They just knew that there was no way we could make a serious film at this point in time. And Schumacher just dove headfirst into all of that. It was going to be this kind of overblown mess. And they knew it. But with Mortal Kombat Annihilation, this was still supposed to be an action movie that was not supposed to be camp. And that's a big difference between a movie that is knowingly going to be bad, or at least not you know, knowingly going to be kind of campy, and one that is unknowingly going to be that way. And that that's the big difference between Batman and Robin and Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. And I had just read recently about this film that the director says that the film was rushed out. That apparently he didn't get a final pass or final few passes through the film that the film that we have seen is actually the unfinished version in his mind that basically they didn't get to do more effects work. He didn't get to add and delete other scenes and other takes and other cuts. And that there was a lot about the film that he was unsatisfied with, but new line cinema just didn't care at that point and knew that the movie was going to make money either way. So why even try to give it a more polished pass at that point? And I'd be interested to see what the, final version of the film would have looked like by him. But even though it probably would have been a little bit better, I still think fundamentally this is a broken film. Oh, it's 100%. There's so many things that are wrong with this that you wouldn't be able to fix with a series of edits on the foundational level. So much of this is terrible. The movie try, it tries to mess with you because it opens up just like the first one did with that sequence of the dragon and the flames and the, the theme song. So it's like, oh, right. okay, well, you know, same song, second verse, we're in for a treat. Right. Not not for long, but as you were saying, <laughs> no. people were laughing at it, and God, it doesn't take very long into this movie before we start realizing why the laughter is hitting hard and fast. First of all, one of the things that's very jarring is if, obviously, if you saw the first movie, and we both did because we covered it, it opens with that, or it closes, the first movie closes with Shao Kahn's face looming in from the sky as he's prepared to invade Earthrealm. Shao Kahn here, not quite living up to the expectations of the end of the first film. <laughs> you know, that's something that really I did want to talk about. Uh, on, my sec on my viewing of the film this time around, the disappointment of Shao Kahn is so detrimental to the film as a whole. I mean, there's a lot of bad things about this film. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. We're going to go through them. But I think <laughs> you bring up a really good point that coming off the first film in which we saw this really creepy, you know, intense Shao Kahn that almost looked demonic to basically a guy wearing a prop hat <laughs> that looks like it's made of foam for a skeleton face. And wow, what a drop. 
I don't know if I want to blame the actor for that. He, of course, has been in a ton of stuff and at that point had been best known for playing the alien bounty hunter in the X-Files television show. And he was very intimidating and creepy on that series. But to be fair, most of his scenes, he wasn't talking. (laughs) You know, and then in Buffy, he had already appeared on Buffy the Vampire Slayer in the first season as one of the vampires in the first two episodes who's trying to help the master with the harvest. And then he'd come back the next season to play the judge. But he, there he's played a little bit more for camp, yes. as the show typically did. So it was okay that he was creepy, but kind of not so creepy at the same time. Right. But we talked about with the first film just how good Shang Tsung is. He's fantastic. And he's obviously chewing the scenery and having a great time. But, it, but he's still threatening, and you still feel his presence as a villain. This Shao Kahn is just such a step down, and that's not how it should be at all. You know, in the video game franchise, Shao Kahn is this huge step up from Shang Tsung in terms of a threat and a look and a difficulty to beat. And the film, the first one, was really leading us into that. And I think I realized something that was making him not as effective as a villain watching this movie because I had forgotten about it completely until I watched it again, is that he's got this father that he's got to like snivel up to and make happy. I forgot that completely. And you know what else I forgot? That father is Chinook. I didn't realize that that was a Mortal Kombat character. Now, to be fair, this movie came out before Mortal Kombat 4, so I hadn't known who Chinook was yet. And I didn't know that that was Chinook until I watched the credits and it said Chinook. (laughs) And I said, oh, okay, well, I guess he's part of Mortal Kombat lore. But it just makes Shao Kahn such an ineffective villain if he has to keep groveling and sniveling up to this other guy for the whole film. It's like he's got daddy issues. Yeah, he does, very clearly. We see that pretty early on, but... Even then, the the problem is with, with Shao Kahn being this, this figure who's supposed to be larger than life. He takes off the mask, and he just looks like a bad Vin Diesel knockoff. Like, oh, yeah. before Vin Diesel was Vin Diesel. And he takes off the mask, and that's the worst thing he could have done. Take, I mean, the yeah. mask itself is pretty bad. But taking oh, yeah. it off is just so much worse, because now he just loses... All sense of intimidation. You know, if they wanted to try to take a break from the series canon or something, and, like, make that face part of him, like, make it so his, like, the top of his face had somehow been eroded by acid or something, or do some Mm -hmm. makeup work to actually make his face look intimidating, do that. And instead, we're just looking at this guy who, again, he kind of looks like, well, Fast and the Furious is coming out in a couple years, so, you know... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he, he looks like he just he does not look intimidating at all. No, he doesn't. He should look demonic is what yes. he should look like. He should look demonic and creepy and he should have glowing red eyes. He he should be a creepy, creepy villain. He should look like the Horned King from the Black Cauldron film. And mind you, the first movie was made on a budget of 18 million. This one had a budget of 30 million. So it's not like they didn't have the resources to do something. Where did that budget go? I can't really, I, I can't really explain where that went. No, <laughs> to be um, honest with you. <laughs> so, so Shao Kahn as our villain is our first big issue. Not to mention, okay, if we look at it from two angles, if you're just uh, a fan of the move, the first movie, you didn't play the games, you want to see this one, or if you're just a complete newcomer, you look at this guy and you're thinking he's not really that intimidating. No. And then even worse, if you're a fan of the games and you look at this guy, you're just like, what the fuck? It's it's already a big step down. And then, as you said, there's the recasting. And, of course, they recast the best 
actor in the first film, which was Lyndon Ashby as Johnny Cage. But we don't really get to, you know, worry about that for too long because then they kill him very quickly. I think that that already was probably one of the biggest signs outside of Shao Kahn not being intimidating within the first few minutes. Basically, the best character of the first film has not only been recast, but killed off. Where are we going from here now? And and here's the other issue, too, as we're going to find out. This movie has nothing to help define the characters like the first film did. The first movie, our characters were very well defined by their dialogue and then by their actions in the fight sequences. This has none of that anywhere. James Remar, who <laughs> plays Raiden in this. Yep. Remar is a fantastic actor. He Oh, he, most, he certainly is. Most people would know him as uh, Dexter's father from the show Dexter. Yeah, I, I know him from that. And then also Sex in the City was one of the other things I knew him from. He had a long-running role on that that was very good, too. So, he, like you said, he's obviously a very good actor. Yeah, he's very <laughs> talented. But then you watch him in this, and all of his lines are kind of said like this. As if he was somehow trying to act a little bit tougher than normal, but not carry any emotion in his voice, just kind of dead the entire time. It's like if I was trying to do a Christopher Lambert impression, but really didn't care about sounding anything like Christopher Lambert. Oh, man. But, you know, I think I think a good juxtaposition, though, is looking also at Liu Kang, because it is the same actor. But wow, what? a difference these two films make. Oh now, my we God. said in the, in the first film, Liu Kang wasn't the most interesting because like the games himself, he's kind of the hero and he goes through the hero's journey. But he was fine in the first one, even if we were more entertained by Kano and Johnny Cage and Raiden. He did his part well. Here, you know, I, I don't want to blame Robin Shu. I really do want to blame the film. It feels like, it feels like Liu Kang's character has taken five steps backwards all of a sudden. Oh, yeah, in, ev- in every way. Yeah, it feels like the hero's journey he went on not only didn't happen, but that he's even dumber than he was at the beginning of the first film. He just comes off as an inept leader who can't do anything right, ever. Why are you following this guy? He can't He can't do anything right, and he can't seem to understand anything, and he gets betrayed really easily and manipulated really easily. He just keeps losing all his fights. I don't know, man. It's just... Watching the film, that was another thing that really jumped out at me, is that Liu Kang's character is an idiot in this <laughs> film every single time. And it's quite shocking to watch just how stupid he is. Oh yeah, he's awful. As if things weren't bad enough already. Things only get worse when we start realizing that Katana... Uh, I mean, if the first film had a problem writing female characters with their dialogue, this film attempted to avoid that problem by writing out one of the main female characters and just getting rid of her. Though, again, she might not be the best actress either, because, I mean, her performance of this is is worse than the first one, but when you think about the first one, she's kind of this mysterious presence who doesn't talk for a while. Then when she does talk, she's just talking in riddles, and then we meet at the end, she's basically an information dump. And and in this, she's just a... uh, the, The term that they use for it now is fridging, basically, where you take a female character, throw her in the fridge... And that's it. And right. that's kind of what they do here. She's just a, a plot device in that she's she's kidnapped, and that's it. Raiden's like, you gotta go and protect Katana. Okay. You know what? I just realized. Raiden kind of reminds me of Dauber from Coach. Okay. <laughs> in this movie. Okay. Like, he, he's one step away from, pronounce his name, it's like Bill Faker Becker or okay. something, but he plays Patrick on SpongeBob. 
And he's okay. not too far away from that. Just deepen the voice a little bit. It's like, Liu Kang, uh, gotta protect Katana. If she gets kidnapped, bad things are gonna happen. Yeah, uh, and then, you know, Jax is obviously supposed to be the replacement for Johnny Cage in this film. We're supposed to relate to him and him being like, oh, this is so crazy. What's going on? But the problem is we already went through a whole film and we're pretty much acclimated with the craziness at this point. Yes. And Jax just comes off as like, get with the program, dude. They're invading our world. Stop acting like what the hell's going on all the time. We already know what's going on. Though at least Jax has like the only memorable line in this movie when later on Sonya's talking to him. You could try to save the world, but it didn't save Johnny. And Jax is saying, but what's going on here? What's all this about invading? And who the hell is Johnny? <laughs> well, I would say that there's actually one other line I like in the film at, that I genuinely like. And I that will dovetail us into Sonya. I will say that while it's not a great performance, I would say that Sandra Hess's Sonya is probably one of the only characters in the film that I don't find actively irritating. <laughs> <laughs> And in this film, that is high praise. She's not great, but she's not actively irritating either. And I will say that the only times, and we'll probably get more into this later, but the only times that the fight scenes ever come close to being satisfying are any of the ones with her. One, she's a better fighter than Bridget Wilson, so we get better fights. But they're also not as ridiculously over the top as they are with Liu Kang, where he is just like... I mean, if you had a problem with the Liu Kang reptile fight in the first one, strap in, because that's the most realistic fight you've ever seen in your life compared to this movie. Oh my god. And it goes double for Liu Kang, who's just doing all this high-wire flipping that's implausible throughout the whole film. But her fights actually come close to being almost exciting. And I would say that the best one is the Cyrax scene where she frees Jax and has to fight all the minions, basically, in the computer room. That is, like, one of the closest times we get to a good fight because you can see that she's fighting, but it's exciting and it looks realistic enough to be that I can buy into it, unlike most of the film. And her fight with Molina is disappointing. I mean, I was so looking forward to that because Molina is my favorite character, but... Even then, as disappointing as it is, it's probably the second best fight after the Cyrax minion battle in the computer room. And then she has probably the one line in the film that when I rewatched it before this, I laughed with the film and not at the film. And that's when Liu Kang, in his stupidity, shows up with Jade, who he just trusts immediately, even though he has no reason to trust this woman, especially how she entered fighting him. And I love Sonya just looking at him like, who is this? This is Jade. I just ran into her. She's like, where's Katana? Uh, she got kidnapped. So you lost her and picked this girl up? <laughs> That's the one time I laugh because I'm laughing with the film while the film's laughing at itself. <laughs> for Liu Kang basically just picking up this random girl who's a Katana stand and being like, good enough for now. The the issues with this film that we're going to see leading off of the what you mentioned about the fight sequences, right from the first fight, we're having issues because this thing <laughs> becomes a special effects mess of a caliber of which I've I, I've seldom seen the blue screen the green screen effects. Oh, oh my yeah. god, they're so awful! You're looking at the backgrounds; they literally didn't even try. Like the, no. the chroma key is so far off, it's absurd. And then they start busting out special moves that are trying to emulate the game, like Shao Kahn does, like his shoulder bash, but it just looks like somebody like cut and pasted his picture and then like doubled it over a couple times and scrolled it across the screen. Oh, and, and then the amount of flipping in the air. Everyone is flipping in the air for like a good 30 seconds before they hit the ground. Yes. And, and then Johnny Cage tries to do his famous kick, flying kick, 
And again, they use kind of the same image. There's Johnny, and they cut and paste him a couple times, like, scroll him across the screen. It looks awful. Raiden's trying to, like, you know, use his lightning at one point to try to, like, hold off a bunch of his Shao Kahn's quote-unquote generals. And everything looks so awful. Like, seriously, they said they did not try at all to make any of this look convincing or remotely decent. It's disgusting, and then you realize that, like, again, this is the first fight. So if it's that, if it's this bad now, how bad is it going to be later on? Yeah, and the other thing that's really bad about it is, you know, when you watch the first film, we talked about some of the effects were dated, but they didn't rely on effects as a crutch for everything the way this film does. And in the first film, they did a lot of actual location filming, which really helped the film. They they went to Thailand and they shot in front of you know, old decrepit mosques and temples. And they found that beautiful island to film a lot of the exterior shots that the tournament takes place on. This one, they like, they're in some probably desert in Arizona and just blue screened and green screened everything else on top of that desert. That's the other thing. This film has no character in terms of its style and look and feel. It just feels like people wandering endlessly through this blank space that's just filled with green screen and there's absolutely nothing about it that's eye-catching or anything where we talked about with the first film you know it takes a good half of the film before we get to the fights but it does such a good mood establishing everything whether it's the on-location shooting or the really good sets that they came up with that you're really sucked into this world where this one like you said from the beginning you're just looking like that is a terrible blue screen everybody is flipping for minutes on end this is this is bad now to be fair this does go into my theory a little bit that outworld has different mechanics for gravity (laughs) because in this whole film outworld is merging with earth realm and gravity seems to be flying out the window (laughs) the more we're watching it apparently the acting goes out the window too because we're introduced very quickly to sindel who is supposed to be katana's mother and she's one of the plot devices for how this is all possible, in that right. Shao Kahn has somehow brought her back to life, and that is allowing him to use her power and her life force to bridge the dimensions. Katana sees her, Mother, you're alive? And then Sindel, in like, spot-on delivery, spot-on, great, great performance. <laughs> Too bad you will die! <laughs> you can't even say it with a straight face. No, you it can't! Is one of the- it is one of the best worst moments of the film because the line delivery is so bad, but it's I not just, the worst one. <laughs> I just don't understand. I really don't understand why somebody was like, "Yep, that's the t- that's the take that's going to stick." That's well, the one. You know, but as I said, maybe that was the take. Maybe he did have other takes, but again, the studio wouldn't let him finish with the better takes. Basically, they just rushed it out. So. Who knows what we'll ever see, but you're right. I mean, it is one, it's one of the scenes that whenever people are making fun of this film, you, you usually hear that scene pretty quickly because it's bad. If, if that's not bad enough, even some of Brian Thompson, Shao Kahn's lines when he's talking, kind of talking like this to where it sounds maybe he's about to cry. Right, which again shows you just how he's such an inefficient villain. He, he's not scary at all. He comes off as sniveling and crybaby-ish and with a lot of daddy issues and looking for validation around him all times. It just, it doesn't work. But something else I want to bring up now, in this scene, all of a sudden, we're not only introduced to Shao Kahn and Sindel, we're also introduced to Ermac and Shiva and Smoke 
and Rain, and Montaro. And how many characters from the entire Mortal Kombat franchise can we shove into one film? And this is something that really bothered me even when I first watched it at the age of 11. The fact that they felt they needed to try to cram in like all 30 plus characters into one movie. Yeah, and even Cabal and Curtis Stryker, they mention in one of the scenes later on where they say, oh, you know, we, we took care of them. And <laughs> apparently... There was actually supposed to be footage of them worked into this movie as well. So we were supposed to have two more characters just for the sake of them dying. And instead, they just get mentioned. It's like, oh, well, let's drop these names here. Just throw some more characters in here. It's, we're going to find out pretty much all of these characters, whether it be Shiva, Motaro, or later on, Sub-Zero and Scorpion. All of them have no purpose in the movie. This is, this is like filmmaking 101. This is like basic fucking filmmaking is that if you put too many characters into your movie, you've dispersed the focus, so now you can't even put the time and energy into the characters that you're supposed to focus on, who are your main ones. You're sacrificing the depth of character for the number of characters, and that's that's absolutely ridiculous. It's not something you want to do in any way, shape, or form. I can't believe they were that stupid to do this. Well, you know, it's one of those things where you could tell they're trying to please everybody by trying to please every fan of the franchise by getting their favorite character in. And by doing that, they please no one. You know, just like I was looking forward to Molina and then she's there and she's gone. I was like, oh, okay. And then I remember even as a kid watching the scene where Shao Kahn comes to talk to his, you know, min, you know, minions and whatnot. And you have Rain, the purple ninja, who doesn't even get introduced to like Ultimate Mortal Kombat 3. And he just says something just to piss Shao Kahn off, so he takes his hammer and smashes him and kills him, and he's dead. And I remember even as a kid, just thinking in my mind, check, Rain's in the film. You get the joke, though, about Rain, right? What? What color is Rain? Oh. (laughs) Yeah, okay. I think I tried to block that out. That was an intentional design choice by Ed Boon and John Tobias. Like, make the character Rain, he's purple. Purple Rain. I'm gonna, you know, throw him a bone there. That's actually kind kind of funny. And I don't mind Rain as a character in the game. I mean, he's he's fine. He's actually one of the better characters to fight with in Mortal Kombat Trilogy. But in terms of a character that we need in this film, I mean, completely unnecessary. And it just points out their need to feel like they have to get as many people in there as possible without stopping and thinking about how do they add to this film in any way. Right. And even then, like, for instance, Jade's character, who is meant to play a double agent for Shao Kahn, basically. What, what, right. point, what point did she actually have in the film? Like, how did her betrayal actually move the story along in any shape or form. Right. It didn't do anything, it felt like. The only major plot event that takes place in this movie, which is kind of disgusting when you think about it, is the the kidnapping of Katana. That and, of course, the the Nightwolf scene, which... We'll we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. that Starting to go through the the film here after that, that fight sequence where... Everything kind of falls to shit because Johnny gets killed, his neck is snapped. For some reason, and this isn't fully explained, it just happens to be that case, it, it needs to take no fewer, no less than, and no greater than, but exactly seven days for this to take place for uh, Shao Kahn to be able to invade Earthrealm. Like, there's no speed-up operation here. It can't take place in six days. They can't just say, hey, let's go full throttle and do this. But no, Raiden clearly tells him, we have six days, six more days to do this, to, to stop the invasion. And nobody's like, well, what if Shao Kahn, you know, what if he really kills a lot of people fast? Don't we only have like five days? Nope, no, six days. So that's, and again, none of that is explained. 
they immediately take off after that fight. They get the hell out of there. Because uh, Raiden does a dumbass move uh, where Johnny Cage is being held captive and being like, oh, I'm going to snap his neck, Raiden. I said, you do that and I'll take your generals as he covers them in, like, electricity. Which I don't know why he just didn't finish this earlier like that. But whatever. So he's about to zap them all. But he's like, come here and bow at my feet. And Raiden's going to go over there and bow at Shao Kahn's feet as he releases Johnny. But then Shao Kahn's like, fooled you! And snapped his Johnny's neck. <laughs> Tossed him down the ground. And Raiden doesn't immediately zap everybody. Yeah. Does nothing. Like I said, everybody in this film is pretty much an idiot. Everybody's right. pretty much ineffective. Like I said, only Sodia and Jax come across as semi-competent. And even then, that's like, you know, they're not completely competent. They're just not as incompetent <laughs> as everybody around them. And then to, to launch from there, a- after Johnny's dead, Raiden says, okay, well, we're not strong enough to beat Shao Kahn. Liu Kang's like, yeah, I am. Like, no, you're fucking not, okay? You beat Shang Tsung, but he's this is Shao Kahn. You, you can't just go up and beat him. And Luke Kang's like, well, whatever. We all got to get stronger. So there's very specific missions that you all can go on that are, this is definitely going to help. Like, trust me, for some reason I had this all planned out as what we can do. Liu Kang, you're going to go and you're going to meet Nightwolf. I don't know why I didn't contact him beforehand. I didn't know why he wasn't <laughs> in Mortal Kombat because apparently this guy is like the ace in the hole that we could have used. But nope. <laughs> you're going to go meet up with him. Sonya... You're going to go get your partner, Jax, because that's somehow going to help you become strong enough to beat Shao Kahn. Never mind the fact that Liu Kang is the one who's going to be destined to kill him. But we need Jax, so you go get him. I'm going to go I'm gonna go talk to, to the gods and, uh, you know, pout for a while. Yeah. You know, this is the way that the, the film is set up in this awful way of saying, okay, let's all just go our separate ways. Which, here's another problem. One of the strengths of the first movie was the chemistry between the characters that we had. Right. And now we don't have that chemistry because they've separated all of them. Yep. Though to be fair, two of the characters... I mean, most of the character actors who added the most chemistry are all gone. Right. So, <laughs> you yes. know, maybe, maybe there was no chemistry there to begin with, so just send them separately on their own, you know, missions to achieve the MacGuffin. Then we get this, this, this horrible... I don't even know why this is fucking in the movie. The ball sphere thing? The velocisphere is like, okay. Oh, what are those things? There's so many ridiculous things about this. Katana <laughs> introduces them as like these, these magical objects that will allow you to move across the globe to any place on the globe within hours. Oh, you yep. mean like a fucking airplane? Cause those but, you know, because those are that too. Our world is burgeoning. Gra- gravity is changing, as we know. So maybe flying an airplane wouldn't have been the smartest move. It might have just gone right into space or something. I don't know. Maybe, but even better, even better. This is the great part. The beautiful thing about these, these spheres under the Earth is that they work off of the wind. The wind that is under, <laughs> under the ground. The under-the-ground wind... <laughs> That's able to blow these spheres all over the place. And she says, they'll be moving so fast, it'll be like you're not moving at all. Cut to the sphere, and it's like rocking back and forth, and Liu Kang's trying to brace for dear life. Yeah, and then, you know, but if you don't know where you're going, you could die. So good things like Katana knew where the right turn was, or else they would have died in molten lava, apparently. And these spheres also cause awkward sen- sexual tension, I feel. Especially when Raiden and Sony are up against each other, like, okay, this is, like, super awkward. It's okay, I'm a thunder god. It's fine. 
who came up with that? That's like not even in the games at all. Like that's not even something that you could say, well, that's just them trying to cram something in from the game that they shouldn't have, like the animalities. Like who came up with this? Then we start to get to our different sections of when they when they arrive at things. Oh, God, where do I want to start with this? I'll start with a positive. A positive for this film, well, not a huge positive, but one is that the soundtrack for the most part is fine. This is basically a continuation of the soundtrack from the first film in terms of like hardcore techno meets industrial metal. And considering the year was 1997 and this is the year that the Prodigy and Chemical Brothers had their huge mainstream breakthroughs, it actually makes more sense that the soundtrack went this way in 97. Um, but the that Katana and Liu Kang have, as bad as it is, the song in the background is pretty cool, pretty kick-ass. It almost made me believe that I'm watching a good fight. And I looked it up, and it's by a group called Scooter, and the song's called Fire. And I actually like that song, and I've been listening to it. So that's one of the few positive takeaways I've had from re-watching this movie. Well, that's cool. That sounded nice. Right. It wasn't all negative. So I discovered another song I like. Now, again, I don't remember all the songs in this film like I do in the first film, but that's only because I watched the first film endlessly so that everything about the film was like committed to memory. But for the most part, the soundtrack is fine in terms of what we expect from Mortal Kombat. Like you said, it begins with the classic theme that we all know and love. And from there, most of the song selections make sense for this franchise, just like it did in the first. And sometimes almost make you believe that you're watching a good fight. From there then, let's go as, as they branch out their separate ways and continue with some of the, I guess, the better uh, parts. You can talk about Sonya and Jax. Yeah, and like I said, that that scene, I mean, it's ridiculous. Why is Jax there by himself? Why is he just waiting? How does he not know something's not wrong? That he's like in an abandoned medical government slash, I don't know, facility. <laughs> and then he can't get out until he uses his arms. It's like, why didn't he think of that ahead of time? I, I don't really know. But when the fighting starts, it's at least mindlessly entertaining enough and not so ridiculous that like I can at least enjoy it on a very, very surface level. And I will say, I'll give the movie some credit for working in one of Sonya's fatalities and making it semi-believable. Oh my god, it's, it's, no, it's not, it's ridiculous. She just picks up this, this powder she finds on the ground. Oh, I'll just blow this at the person, because that's an effective fighting strategy. Well, as it turns out, what she picked up was some sort of asbestos, and now she has cancer. So, yeah, great. Unless, unless you know, laws of, of everything change when Outworld's merging with Earth. As <laughs> You know, I, I don't even know, you know, what happens when Outworld merges other than really bad green screen. Why'd you do this to yourself? And Jack's like, to get stronger. Oh, that's stupid. No, it's actually not stupid. It's actually a pretty good idea. Metallically enhanced arms? Really not a bad idea, all things considered. Yeah, considering that we're being invaded by another realm, you know, we could probably use all the help we can get. So, no, not really a bad idea, not really that stupid. But, you know, he's got to learn to, like, you know, believe in himself. It's You know, he's got to go on his own little hero's journey. So anyway, so we talked about the music of the scene. We just didn't talk about the actual scene. <laughs> right. So we One more really bad green screenshot where Jax and Sonya... I don't know how they were jumping, but it looks like they were falling from the building, possibly. <laughs> like, I don't know how they got in that position. I don't know what's happening. All I know is that that fire behind them is not there. <laughs> uh, I mean, wow. Just one of the worst effect shots in the film, and that's saying something. But then we, we have the fight against Smoke as Liu Kang and Kitana are off on their way to find Nightwolf. And Smoke's there, and it's 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 a it's a fight sequence, I guess. I have nothing positive to say about it, aside from, like, you were talking about the music. Ultimately, Liu Kang and Kitana need the help of Sub-Zero. 
in order to be able to get through this. And Sub-Zero shows up, and Liu Kang is, I thought I killed you. So you killed my brother. I'm his younger brother. Oh. Okay. It's like, well, I'm here because I'm trying to save Katana. She's, like, important to all this. Okay, don't know how you know that, but whatever. <laughs> Thanks for cool. showing up. And then, despite the fact that Scorpion died, somehow he's alive again and just comes up out of nowhere... Uh, at this exact location that he was waiting specifically for them at, knowing they would be here. And Scorpion just comes out of nowhere and kidnaps Katana. Like, they try to do a fight sequence, it doesn't work out, and Katana's gone. Like, kidnapped Scorpion, and you might wonder, well, Scorpion's gonna play, like, a bigger role in this movie. Nope. That's it. Hope you enjoyed him while he was there. Again, they want to give the fanboys the Scorpion vs. Sub-Zero fight. Because really, when it comes down to it, those are probably the two most beloved and iconic characters in the entire franchise. Yes. And so they obviously wanted to have them face off against each other in this movie. But again, it's so anticlimactic. It's so quick cut. I mean, you don't really get to see any really good martial arts. And I think that's the other thing to talk about with this film is on top of it being over the top ridiculous. There's so many quick cuts that you never really get to focus that clearly on any fighting movements like you did in the first movie so you don't really get that and then it's over before you know it and then sub-zero is just all you guys like really dropped the ball here guess i'm not gonna help you <laughs> like oh well thank you for doing nothing except bringing scorpion here and ruining our plans yes <laughs> you basically but- just cause more problems than not but you're blaming me for it thank you yep and then we never see sub-zero again so he's gone too yeah so great that was the end of that and, of course, the effect where Scorpion takes Katana is way less effective than it was when he took Johnny Cage in the first one. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> Someone described it as Jello. It does. It kind of looks like spiky Jello, basically. Yeah, it, a little it, bit. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's all we see of them. Meanwhile, Raiden's off uh, talking with the Elder Gods, and we get a moment of... Okay, moments like this are what made the first film a bit better. These quieter moments where we get mm-hmm. some character establishment. Here, they're trying to do just an expositional dump based off of Raiden asking three questions. Because I right. guess, despite the fact that Raiden is a god, the Elder Gods are just like, nah, we're just going to give you three questions. It's like, yeah, I know you're a god, but no, you just get three questions to us. And Raiden's like, well, you know, uh, Outworld's invading. It's like, yeah, we know, three questions. Pick them careful. And so we, we, we find out, essentially, that... They didn't approve of this to, to be happening, but they're not going to stop it either. Raiden's just like, okay, well, fine, whatever. And then they ask him, would you be willing to sacrifice your immortality for these humans? And I don't know what that has to do with anything, because it, it doesn't... It, I don't understand. Nothing about this film makes sense. No, no, none of the character development, none of the plot mechanics, nothing... Him having to be a human doesn't make sense. Again, I guess because they established in the first one they couldn't really fight because of the tournament, but there's not a tournament anymore. Right. And it's not like the gods offered him special insight or something else because of him sacrificing his power. Well, maybe because he needed it to enter Outworld. Remember, he couldn't enter Outworld in the first one as a god, so maybe now he can enter Outworld without being a god. But then again, the realms are merging, so I'm very shaky on how this is all working. Maybe there was something else that was supposed to happen that was cut that would have further explained why he gave up his power. But right. if it if it is, it's not in this movie. So anyway, that that's our kind of exposition. Then we get to the Nightwolf scene, uh, and here's, here's a fun fact. Nightwolf is a total fucking dick. Oh yeah, totally. And he also likes to say, animality. 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 
and a melody and a melody and a melody i'm gonna whisper and a melody's in your ear (laughs) this is the one thing i remember for the movie more than anything uh is that (laughs) what's your what's your and a melody and a melody it's it's like a bad t-shirt slogan like that somebody would have been wearing after they if they left the movie. You got the logo on the front, Mortal Kombat Annihilation on the back. What's your animality? <laughs> even in the games themselves, the animalities were pretty silly. Even even they were a little bit of a step too far in the wrong direction for the game franchise, in my opinion. So right. trying to incorporate them here to this film is just really, really... Yeah, like all they were in the game was just a gimmicky finishing move. Here right. they've made him an integral plot point. Personally, I think learning a brutality would make more sense than an animality. You would think. <laughs> but whatever. That wouldn't give us the chance to have really, really terrible special effects later. So we got to have that. Oh, God. But yeah, that whole sequence, you're right. Nightwolf is a dick, and he's, like, really into animalities. Like, unhealthily so. Yes. <laughs> like, he's he's... There's something there that feels wrong about how much he's into animality. There's a reason he probably lives out in the desert alone with his wolf and his animality. Yeah, and then he just disappears, never to be heard from again, just like most characters in this movie. But in place of him, we do find out that uh, Liu Kang has to undergo three tests. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Don't know what that third one was, because that never really comes up again. But the first one is all about, like, kind of his, uh, his self-confidence. And I guess that was really important. Pretty much went through that journey already. I don't know why we have to go through it again. Right. And then for some reason, just like Jesus, I guess, he has to resist temptation. And in this case, I don't know what the fuck this has to do with anything. But they're <laughs> like, okay, we're going to throw a pretty lady in front of you. And you can't sleep with her. Because if you do, control yourself for two seconds, <laughs> you need to control your sexual urges. Because apparently they've been running so rampant over the last movie that this is—it's you can't you can't let those control you. Okay, I, I didn't realize that was a, a threat to the world here. I mean, but whatever. But Jade is so hot that everyone can't stop commenting about how hot she is throughout the film. Right. <laughs> I mean, Jax, Raiden, everyone has to make a pass at Jade at some point during this movie. I mean, her her sexual charisma is just so much <laughs> that really it only takes the strongest warrior to resist her charms. In in a complete disservice to her and her character, the first thing that she's basically like, oh, Liu Kang, you seem so strong. You wanna you wanna go fuck? Like <laughs> Yeah, she yep. she almost reminds me of like the Asian prostitute in Full Metal Jacket. It, it, she just comes off like immediately so strongly. It's like off putting. Jesus, lady, <laughs> this is this is absurd. And it's like they were they were thinking, okay, we got to put a love triangle in here between him and Jade and and Katana, but that that obviously never happens either, really. But that's right. just one more thing that they were trying to jam in here, and uh, they fight. And Liu Kang, like, freaks out. It's like, what do you mean this was a test? We almost killed each other. But we didn't. (laughs) Psych. (laughs) And it's, like, literally her answer. It's, yeah, but we didn't didn't die. Actually, I was trying to kill you, but then I failed. So I was like, oh, you passed the test. (laughs) And I'm so hot that you're going to believe me. And Liu Kang, his response is, yes, you are that hot. I won't sleep with you, but I will believe everything you say, even though I have no reason to believe you at all. <laughs> and if Nightwolf is so smart, then how come there's like 
you know, a double agent for Shao Kahn here is part of the test. Uh, I don't I mean, get it. I'm just going to say that Nightwolf got distracted by his animality. And, <laughs> and you know, he, he, he got preoccupied with his animality again. So he got he, stranded in the desert. And just like after like two years, the wolves started looking really good to him. <laughs> that's how he got his name. Uh, yeah, so that's a terrible seed. And then does that bring us up to then where, you know, where Sonia has like one of the only good lines in the film, like, you're an idiot. Why'd you pick up this chick? <laughs> Where's Katana? Yep. And then Sindel shows up and we get to see what Sindel can do basically with her sonic scream. But luckily she doesn't scream at them because that would have killed them. And then the movie would have been over. So well, don't... can we talk about Raiden's makeover from <laughs> from oh, yeah. from Raiden to Billy Idol? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He immediately steps out and like he's got a Billy Idol haircut and like a leather jacket with <laughs> with just his bare chest showing. Yep. Yep. What's up, bros? I mean, like, looking Raiden. back, I think they missed an opportunity to just not cast Billy Idol himself. That probably would have been much more entertaining to have Billy Idol as Raiden. <laughs> no, it totally would have been. But he's like, What's up, bros? Who's the chick? Look at her, she's hot. Yeah, because everyone's got to make a pass at Jade. <laughs> Can she fight as good as she looks? Because now that I'm human, I have to overcompensate. Uh, it's so bad. Okay, so let's speed this up. So, <laughs> so let's keep going. Let's let's get through this here. So, all right. So Sindel shows up, does her sonic scream, but doesn't hit them because why would she? You know, because nobody's effective in this movie at all as a fighter or strategy. You know, we talked about in the first film, Johnny Cage was not necessarily the best technical fighter, but he was the most strategic and the most intelligent. And that really went a long ways to endearing himself as a character in the film and making you buy into the film. There's none of that in this film. Not, not at all. Nobody fights strategically. Nobody fights with their brain. And apparently, according to Jade, everyone's fighting with their penis, I guess, in this movie. So... Or their animality. They go to Outworld, right? They, they end up in Outworld at this point. We finally get there. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and then there's, like, all these ninjas, like, kind of crouching, but, like, not really. They're very obviously visible. Oh, well, so. well before that happens, Raiden tries to open a door for, like, five minutes. <laughs> and he can't because he's not a god anymore, so opening doors has become quite the challenge. Yeah, can't do that anymore. <laughs> we also get the plot twist reveal, though. Oh, right. <laughs> this is a plot twist that, uh, again, unnecessary. Un and again, it just overtly complicates things to a point where you're like, oh, really? Really? Okay. But I guess that's why they were trying to explain like why he didn't just end everything immediately at the very beginning of the film within the first two minutes. In this continuity, not in the main game continuity, yeah. but Raiden and Shao Kahn are brothers. Dun dun dun. Oh, because remember, we saw those like little dragon tattoos that were terrible that flew off of people, whether it was Molina or Cyrax. And oh, can we also, we need to back up for one minute. At the end of the Molina fight, that thing, that horrible CGI mess that came at. Sonya, yeah, because Jax need to fight something. Yeah, uh, that is some of the worst CGI that's ever been done. Ever. It's it's so terribly terrible that it's it, it just boggles the mind that New Line Cinema was like, this is good enough, just release it. Not enough that he couldn't have fought like somebody else at that point in time, but they need to create a CG monster just for that scene. Because we that's what the movie needed was more characters. Yeah. And it just shows that really like New Line Cinema had like did not care about this film at all. I mean, even the worst Nightmare in Elm Street films they cared about more. Even though the first film made them so much money. I mean, you'd think that they would have taken the time to care more. So, yeah, so we find out that stupid plot twist. 
that he's his brother. So he can't fight him because of reasons, even though that didn't seem to stop Shao Kahn from fighting. I, I Whatever. <laughs> I, I don't care. So what happens next? Does Jade betray them finally? Does that fi- And everyone is not shocked in any... Oh no, we gotta rescue Katana because that has the best, worst scene in the film. Take it away. So this is the moment in the film where the audience just burst out laughing, like everybody. When she is trapped in that cage and turns to Lou and gives the stiffest delivery in a movie I've ever seen. It's a trap, Lou. Run. (laughs) And I think that I'm actually making it sound better than it is. (laughs) I just remember that is the moment the entire theater burst out laughing and I laughed with them. That was like probably a moment where I was laughing at a film for the first time about just how bad I couldn't believe how bad that was that delivery. And then of course the Baracas show up and they have the worst outfits ever. And then Shiva shows up and she's supposedly really important, but all we had to do to take care of her was squish her with a cage. But yeah, that scene, that's always the moment in the film that I will always remember till the day I die is Katana's awful line delivery to warn Lou it's a trap and the entire audience bursting out laughing. Everything about that film was terrible up to that point, but that was the moment where it was basically, yeah, this is one of the worst films ever made. It's like nobody told her, like, hey, uh, Talisa, I know we told you we wanted you to play Katana Stoic, but Stoic does not mean emotionally detached to the point of possibly being psychotic. Right, or being a robot, which is an insult to robots because they show more emotion than she did in that scene. I mean, she could have just gone, it's a trap, Lou, run! Any kind of urgency at all. No, none. I mean, that line reading is, that's the line reading that always sticks out in my mind, is just how poorly acted this film is. It really is just, wow. So, okay, so we get through that, and then do we, do we get to, does we get to Jade's portrayal yet? Because I'm ready for that to be over with and move on. (laughs) If if we did or not, just, if we're there now, so whatever. (laughs) So whatever, it's not, oh, nobody saw that coming, like, (laughs) and again, like you said, what did that accomplish? It felt like that accomplished nothing. And why would she want them to rescue Katana anyway? Or was it to take away hope that she thought that she could cure Sindel and then learn that she couldn't, so that would defeat them even more? But I feel like that's giving the film way too much credit. By the way, though, I did watch a video, you know, making fun of the movie. And now every time I see this scene, I'm going to think of what they did. The scene where Sindel stands up and starts twirling. They just put the Wonder Woman theme in the background. Uh, Yes. (laughs) And now that's all I'm going to think about whenever I see Sindel twirl is Wonder Woman. Which, again, that... That TV show had better special effects in 1976 than this movie did in 1997. Uh, And then ultimately we get to the big ending fight where, like, everybody's fighting everybody. So you've got (laughs) Wotaro and Ermac are there, and they're fighting people, and Jax and Sonya are fighting people, and Lou's obviously going to be the one who's going to fight Shao Kahn. And while everybody's attacking and killing, and Raiden's, like, fighting shit too, whatever, uh, but Raiden gets mortally wounded. And he's laying there dead, essentially. And Lou turns into a dragon, and <laughs> Shao Kahn turns into, like, a a different dragon or something. <laughs> he turns into something, all right. Uh, again, I'm pretty sure the audience was laughing their ass off at this scene, too, when it happened, <laughs> when I saw it in that packed theater. At any rate, Shao Kahn's, like, mystified by this, because he's not supposed to be injured. Chinook, who previously was kind of, like, you know, all in Shao Kahn's camp, those are the consequences for breaking the sacred rules of mortal combat. 
<laughs> Shouldn't you have told your son about that a little bit earlier? <laughs> yeah, you seem to be the one that wanted to keep breaking the rules for that. I, I, I don't know. Maybe he's trying to save face in front of the Elder Gods. Who knows? <laughs> but apparently this is also the, the, the clue that the Elder Gods need to be like, Ah, it was you, Shinnok, who decided to break the rules. So now we can step in funny that they had no idea what was happening you think that they would have <laughs> yeah but then they're like okay impromptu mortal combat for the fate of the world right now guys <laughs> and you know it's mortal combat because we're playing the theme finally <laughs> and and they actually in one of the most horrendously stupid but weird moves one of the actors who plays the elder gods the fate of the world will now be decided in mortal combat as he's saying mortal combat they have to, at the same time, play that Mortal Kombat voice clip for no reason. It's yeah. obvious that the editing was done at the last minute. You know, it's almost like a college like exam was due the next day for these editors. And they're like, oh, my God, we got to get this in now. New Line says it has to come out tomorrow. <laughs> they were like literally editing this and pasting it together right before they shipped it out. So, yeah, Lou wins in a fight that's just stupidly stupid. The Katana Sindel fight, the... The Sonya Ermac and I guess Noob Saiba and the Montaro Jax fight. Like none of those are satisfying in any way either. No, they're, they, they're not they, interesting. They're not well choreographed. They 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 suck. Like what you said earlier, they have no personality. Right. So yeah, ob- obviously Liu Kang wins, and then well, two two more special effects things had to happen here for for reasons. Um, <laughs> the the first being that Chinook gets packed into a bunch of boxes and then somehow folded in on each other and then he disappears. Got sent uh, to the Phantom Zone. <laughs> apparently he did. And I hope... <laughs> there was Zod. I, I hope that he and Terrence Stamp are having a great time together. And and then if that wasn't as absurd as it... Already. I guess Shao Kahn turns into another dragon and then kind of like melts uh, and stuff. And then his body is just kind of like a puddle. Okay, um, can we talk about the special effects shot where his face first turns into a dragon? I mean, that really is the stuff of nightmares and not in the way they intended. Yeah, bad. So yeah, then puddles and then all of a sudden we're back at the temple again. And everything worked out. Yay! End of movie. Now, <laughs> Sindel is apparently no longer under Shao Kahn's power and she's gotten rid of her terrible hair job. And Katana's mother, you're alive again. Uh, does this mean you're still a zombie? Because you were kind of dead before? Like, uh, you the living dead? I don't understand. But they're just, like, all happy. And then Raiden says, fuck it, I'm out of here. Uh, the other guys want me to take up one of the things, so, uh, you guys, uh, you guys take care of your family now. Including you, Sindel, you're part of the family now, too. Granted, everybody's only known you for about five minutes, and four out of those five were as an evil villainess. But I want you all to walk off arm in arm around each other's back together to end this movie. And the monks just stand there motionless. Yep. I think I think it's shock of t- as to what just happened. Yep, the monks are just like, yep, yeah, same shit, different day. <laughs> oh, God. And then mercifully, the film ends. <laughs> and it's over. And oh. there was never another Mortal Kombat movie after that. And for good reason. I mean, apparently there was supposed to be a third one in the works at that time. What was it called? It was like with the like Mortal Kombat, like Devastation or something. Yeah, something like that. Um, I, think, I think that they were planning on making a third one, Devastation, after that one. But those plans obviously got scrapped. <laughs> yeah, this movie uh, 
It lost money at the box office, and for good reason, because uh, it is absolutely horrible. It, it's just, it's it's terrible. It is just absolutely terrible in every single way. There is yeah. literally nothing redeeming about this film, because all the performances, even the best performances, are nowhere near good. They're, right. They can mostly be described, at best, as adequate. And then the rest of it is just, like, sucked down into this sinkhole of, of awfulness. And it, it tells you something, like what you were saying earlier... When your characters from the previous film, Liu Kang and Kitana, who are played by the same people, their performances got worse. And yeah. le- legitimately worse. It baffles me. I guess the the director, uh, John Leonetti, used to be a cinematographer uh, before working on this. I mean, he worked on the previous Mortal Kombat as a cinematographer. He worked on The Mask, Spy Hard, Hot Shots Part 2. Like, those movies, he didn't direct. This is, was his first time directing. And I think that goes to show the difference between when somebody is a cinematographer and somebody's a director. A cinematographer is just setting up and making sure the director gets the right shots. Mm -hmm. The director is supposed to draw the performances out to make the film. And he obviously, Leonetti obviously did not have any clue what he was doing in that. No, not at all. Not at all. And, you know, I would say that this film... I mean, I ended up buying it on video eventually, but I didn't get it until like the summer of 99. So I eventually bought it a couple years down the road and then I watched it a few times and I never watched it again. Really? Like, I can't even remember last time I watched this film. I mean, the first one I know I had watched once in the early 2010s, like 2011 or so, but this one, I can't remember last time I watched it. And I, you know, I want to be fair. I, I didn't want to do this podcast just to rip it apart, just to be like, look at us, we're ripping something apart. Isn't that funny? That's not my deal. You know, I love Mortal Kombat and I loved it back then, you know, but this, this film is just terrible on every front. And I, looking back, it feels like the tipping point in my Mortal Kombat fandom. It feels like the beginning of the end. It wasn't the end, but it felt like the beginning of the end of my Mortal Kombat fandom where I was still into the games for a little bit. I would get N64 with Trilogy and 4, and I'd play them. Um, But I didn't care about the TV show that came out later, The Crusade. Like I said, I didn't see this movie over and over again. And pretty soon, I just delved way more into music and horror films, and I kind of left Mortal Kombat behind for the most part. And this really does feel like the beginning of the end of my fandom. And it does feel like the beginning of the end for the franchise when it really hit its low point at the end of the decade where after having a terrible movie and a short-lived TNT show, the games themselves were starting to suffer. And everyone really points to the low point being the Special Forces game with Jax, which I've never played. Oh, I and uh, that in Sub-Zero Mortal Kombat mythology, Sub-Zero, yeah. Yeah. Like, are both pointed out as real low points for the, for the franchise in general. And that, you know, then John Tobias left. Yes, the, um, And that was a huge blow to them at that point. And so, you know, by the time you entered the new millennium with Mortal Kombat, I mean, it already started looking like a relic of a past era. And the fact that they were able to have a huge comeback with the Deadly Alliance video game was a big deal for them. But I think it says a lot to that in the 2000s, Mortal Kombat just got back to being a gaming franchise again. There's, I don't think they did anything outside the games throughout the 2000s. In the 2010s, they started doing more like more soundtrack albums, comic book tie-ins, you know, legacies. But I think after the 90s and I think after that terribleness that was Mortal Kombat Annihilation, they kind of just stuck to games for a decade and basically tried to rebuild the Mortal Kombat brand again. 
Well, yeah, because the other problem, too, that we had in that time period, especially when it came to gaming, was that you were on the cusp of transitioning from what were traditionally 2D games right. to 3D games. And right. the fight, fighting franchises in particular got hit with that pretty hard. 3D fighters are now all the rage, so Mortal Kombat had to try to adapt to that. And mm-hmm. then, you know, it worked out decently well, but Mortal Kombat 4 is, is generally not regarded as one of the best of the, of the franchise. And then they started to pick up steam again after that. And then you also had the new console generations that were coming out at that point in time, so you had people adapting to that. So it was a really a mess for the games around, around that era as well. Well, plus the arcades were also going out of style. Mortal Kombat 4 is the last one they made for an arcade, because these games were always made for arcades first and then ported over to the gaming consoles afterward. But after the 90s, the, the home consoles really overtook the arcade industry completely. Right, and then to, to top all of that off, fighting games around that point in time, too, were starting to die off. And the only one that was remotely kind of successful, that it kind of picked up the slack and, and put itself out there, was when Nintendo released Super Smash Brothers, And that right. was well-received, but traditional fighting games were falling out of favor. Even though Mortal Kombat was kind of limping along as representing it, it wasn't until later on when Street Fighter Four came out that interest in that kind of... Uh, gaming revitalized itself tremendously. So that was an that entire time period was really rough for Mortal Kombat. The only other thing that helped kind of bring things back was a sense of nostalgia that people had in saying, hey, if we can make unofficial fan projects and we can do them better than mm. what Mortal Kombat Annihilation did. Right. And that's where you have like the, the whole Mortal Kombat rebirth that eventually came around. Yep. I know, and I haven't watched those yet, and I'd be very interested to watch the whole Rebirth Legacies series to see how that is. Because like I said, I did just about everything Mortal Kombat in the 90s, but then I dropped off from gaming and the franchise, and I didn't really, you know, I haven't played any of the games yet after Part 4, and I haven't read the comics from the 2010s, I haven't watched Legacy, so I haven't seen some of the newer stuff that they've done with the franchise. I'd be interested in doing that, though, and seeing what it's like. Annihilation is a terrible film, but it it feels like an important film in that it was the beginning of the end of my Mortal Kombat fandom. It was the beginning of me being able to understand what a bad film was and not just what I thought was cool and what wasn't cool, basically, up until that point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's memorable for all the wrong reasons, but it's but again, watching it this time, I, I sometimes I underestimate just how terrible it is until I watch it again. And then I'm reminded, yeah, this is as bad as everyone says it is. This is this is terrible. I mean, there's just certain films that sometimes you go back and your opinion slightly change. You're like, well, this wasn't as bad or this wasn't as good or whatever. But Mortal Kombat Annihilation, no matter how many times I try to convince myself before I go back to watch it again, it always lives up to being one of the worst films I've ever seen. And I think that it gets left out of the conversation too often. I think it's easy for us to point to, like, Exorcist 2, The Heretic, or Jaws, The Revenge, or Batman and Robin, or Geely, you know, as just some of the worst films ever made. But Mortal Kombat Annihilation definitely has its place in the worst films ever made, video game or not. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the only way you to enjoy this film, I'm kind of a... I guess a film level is to watch it with other people to make fun of it. Oh yeah. 
It's Mystery Science Theater 3000 levels of bad. And really, you should only watch it knowing that. You should only go into it knowing you're about to watch one of the worst films ever made and basically prep yourself accordingly. That's the only way you'll enjoy this film on any level whatsoever, even if you're a huge Mortal Kombat fan. I mean, I'd be interested to see if any of your listeners actually do like this film. You know, and I'd actually be interested to hear if they have anything positive to say that we didn't bring up. Because I honestly would like to hear that. Because like I said, I don't want to just bury Mortal Kombat just to bury it. But again, just watching it, like you said, there's just there's there's nothing really to latch on to. If you do have something that you like about this film, please let us know what it is. And, and go into as much detail as you want. Even, okay, and, and not to mention, if you do like watching the movie... Uh, that's different than saying this is a good movie. So if mm, you think that's... this is a good film, that's another thing that you should mention too. Like, what do you find that is is good about this movie? Like, what had they, what did they do well? Because uh, that's again a separate thing from whether or not you like a film. Because like again, like a perfect example is the movie The Room. Terrible film on right. every every level. Infinitely likable because of how bad it is. Right. Right. Like, you can fully like that movie and then recognize how, how awful it is. And yep. uh, maybe that's the case that some people have with Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Uh, but let us know here in the comment section as we... I think we can definitively state that, that this movie does not hold up. No. Like you said, you put it perfectly. It stopped holding up the minute it got released to theaters. The moment it was released in theaters, it didn't hold up. And even my 11-year-old self could see that. Well, and we clearly see it here as we've covered it now, probably with more detail and consideration than it deserves. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we did it. So leave your thoughts here as we continue on to bring you another episode of How Does It Hold Up? But not sure what the topic will be for next time. But at the very least, we've got this one done over with It's Behind Us. Uh, so, Dougie, thank you very much for being here. Thank you again for having me. It was a real pleasure, even if the film wasn't. And we wish you all a good day and pleasant dreams of Electric Sheep.